One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Willy Harry Stee, Harry Dick John, Harry Three. And so it is in my personal history of the English monarchy, British monarchy, UK monarchy, I don't really know officially what it should be called, our monarchy, we come to Henry III. And actually, I was talking to someone about the podcast the other day who hadn't been listening to it, and I said it's, you know, the history of the monarchy. And they said, oh, I won't be listening to that. I'm not a royalist. I had to say, well, I, I am neither a royalist nor a republican. I just think that this is a fascinating story. It's an amazing story. And it is a way of trying to make sense and get an overview of British history through the lens of the monarchy. And that is what has brought us to Henry III. And uh, Henry III is not a well-known king. I don't think if you asked many people what they knew about Henry III that they would know anything. I mean, there is one aspect of his life, and that is his relations with this guy, Simon de Montfort, who is often seen as the sort of grandfather of Parliament. It's one of those names that we say, oh, yes, I know that name. Yes, what used to be Leicester Polly, I think, is now de Montfort University, named after him. So that might be the, the one aspect of his life that people know. And Henry was locked in a long-running dispute well it turned into a war with with Simon de Montfort which we will come to later but in many ways Henry III's reign is like a sort of sequel to King John you know it's like you had a successful film and then you make the sequel and it's not as good as the first one uh, you haven't got as good a writer maybe you couldn't afford the star so you've got a lesser star and it sort of follows the same plot as the first film but they have to change a few bits and pieces. It needs to be similar enough and different enough. And it's usually a disappointment. And that, for me, is how I see Henry III's relationship with, with King John. King John, I mean, you know, he was a villain in most people's eyes. But at least we remember him. 
unlike his son, Henry III, who, like so many of these early monarchs, seemed determined to repeat the mistakes that their parents made and their parents before them. And they seemed to be unable to properly sort things out, even though he ruled for 56 years, from 1216 to 1272. And he was our longest reigning monarch before George III, hundreds and hundreds of years later. And then it goes George, Victoria, Elizabeth. So at least he wasn't killed. He didn't die prematurely. He lived to uh, 65, born in 1207. He died probably of a stroke. So, you know, does that make him a more successful king than the others who ruled for 10 years or so? I mean, he was still involved in an ongoing war at the time of his death, right through his reign. The barons, the aristocracy, the ruling classes, whatever you want to call them, kept kind of rising up against him. And, and it was a period in, in, in many ways of sort of civil war. James Hawes, who we had on as a guest earlier on, in his brilliant book, Shortest History of England, characterises this as a dispute between French-born Frenchmen, who have lands in England, and English-born Frenchmen who have lands in England, and they don't get on with each other, and they both speak a slightly different version of French. So he very much sees this as a continuation of, of French wars for English territory, with Henry kind of caught up in the middle of this. And Henry's interesting because he very much seemed to be interested in the pre-Norman past of England. He was obsessed with Edward the Confessor, who was the king before King Harold, who was defeated by William at the Battle of Hastings. And Edward the Confessor had been made this saint, and Henry adopted him as his personal patron saint and built a shrine to him in Westminster Abbey and was very much into the sort of um, the historical past and the religious past in England. He named his eldest son Edward after Edward the Confessor, which was you know, a break from tradition where the Norman kings and the Plantagenet kings, having their origins in France, were using French names. So Edward was a throwback to Edward the Confessor, an Anglo-Saxon king, uh, and he, he named another of his sons Edmund, which goes even further back into Anglo-Saxon's times. So he was sympathetic to the English past, and, and I think he was wanting to, to try and say, look, I am an Englishman, because he managed to continue in the tradition of his father, John, and carry on losing more land in France. And so he was probably thinking, right, that's it, France has gone. I'd better start thinking of myself as English and hope that the English don't uh, boot me out as well. So Henry married a woman called Eleanor of Provence. And it's a bit of an understatement to say that there was an age gap between them because he was 28 and she was 12. People did seem to marry very young in those days. I mean, it wasn't necessarily a consummated marriage uh, when she was 12. But she did give birth to her first son, Edward, when she was 16. And she had five children in all. And Henry did seem to be very devoted to her. He, he liked home life. He liked the comforts of home. He didn't really enjoy doing the sort of kingly campaigning side of things. And he spent a lot more time at home with his court than previous kings had. So he wasn't seen as particularly dynamic. On that level, he seems like a more modern person than some of these other kings were 
you know, it's very hard to get a grip on them of, of what their personal life must be like. And he, he did seem to love Eleanor and he did seem to like being with her. There's a story that he survived an assassination attempt because the the assassins went to his chambers to kill him and he wasn't there because he was in Eleanor's chambers um, and that, yeah, they were shagging. So he, he was saved by the simple act of shagging his wife. And thanks to that, uh, the, the monarchy survived and the ultimate result is King Charles taking the throne. He was, he was a fairly ineffectual king. He mounted various campaigns and lost nearly all of them, which we will look at later. He, he liked the idea of being a king and he liked the pomp and ceremony of court life. And he sort of behaved in a way that he thought a king ought to behave and got his court to do the same thing. And they were, they were very pious. There was a lot of kneeling and praying and feasting and, and courtly rituals and this sort of courtly chivalry. And, and he seemed to sort of enjoy that side of it more than the side of it where you actually do anything properly to help your people. So it was sort of pantomime, cosplay or whatever, because he was king. <laughs> but at the time of his father's death, we've seen how King John, after signing the Magna Carta, immediately broke all its rules, got the Pope to try and nullify it, and started up another war with his barons to try and reclaim all the powers that he'd signed away in the Magna Carta and ended up kind of skulking around East Anglia and the sort of east of the country and the sort of Fenlands, traipsing from one safe place to another as the enemy forces attacked him. And we've seen how Prince Louis of France was invited over to England with a French army by the rebellious barons to defeat John and uh, how Louis set himself up as king of England. He was King Louis, the king of the swingers. He wasn't able to be crowned because the Pope and the church didn't approve, but he considered himself king of England. He doesn't appear on the official list of the English monarchy, but at the time he was considered to be ruling the country. And he was still in that position when John died of dysentery whilst campaigning. At which point we were poised at a position where Louis could have cemented his position and taken over as King of England, or the crown could go to young Prince Henry, who was only nine years old at the time. But on his deathbed, John had appointed a council of 13 barons to look after Henry and rule on his behalf. And he had appointed as the guardian of Henry, this very famous knight called William Marshall, who was a fascinating figure. When I get to the end of the actual monarchs, um, if the series is popular and successful, I may well go back and do sort of sidebar episodes about some of these other characters who, who kind of deserve their own episode. And William Marshall is one of these. As I say, he was a knight. And a lot of the barons at the time were a pretty shady bunch. Are totally unreliable. They were constantly switching sides if they felt it was to their own personal benefit. Utterly untrustworthy. But William Marshall does seem to have been a proper old school, old fashioned, stout hearted, faithful knight. He reminds me a bit of the character played by Ian Glenn in Game of Thrones, who is so devoted to Daenerys. But William Marshall had served five kings. He had been a knight for King Henry II. He had looked after 
Henry's son, Henry the Young King, who was crowned within Henry's lifetime, uh, but never fully took the throne. He was a knight for Richard I. He was a knight for King John, and he was a knight for King Henry III, and really saved his bacon. As William Marshall took over the leadership of Henry's army for him, and he defeated the barons and Prince Louis, King Louis, whatever you want to call him, defeated their army at the Battle of Lewis. And when Louis tried to bring in reinforcements and special siege equipment, his fleet was defeated and destroyed at the Battle of Sandwich in the English Channel. So with these two battles, the Barons' War came to an end. Uh, Louis agreed to a truce and Henry was reasonably secure on the throne. Talking of sort of interesting characters in sidebars, the, the French fleet was led by this guy called Eustace the Monk. And it'd be great to do an episode on him. He was this sort of mercenary pirate character who um, had his base in the Channel Islands at one point. And he was fascinating because a lot of the armies at the time, they would use mercenaries because otherwise they're relying on sort of untrained local farmers. So even though it was expensive, you know, you would get a proper trained army. And he led a sort of colourful life and has been the sort of model for glamorous pirates and outlaws in many stories ever since. There were ballads written about him back in the day. So I might come back to Eustace the Monk, but I've distracted myself there. So back to Henry, Henry III. One of the things he did was to develop the Tower of London and make it much bigger, much more like how we see it today. Originally, there was just the White Tower as built by William the Conqueror, but... As I say, Henry expanded it and put up a lot of new buildings and walls, partly because he wanted it to be more secure, as he didn't trust his barons, but also because he wanted it to be more comfortable as a royal residence. And he also moved the royal zoo there. The zoo had first been established by Henry I at Woodstock near Oxford in 1100, but Henry III moved it to the Tower of London. And he had lots of exotic animals from around the world there, which were often gifts from foreign rulers, including a polar bear that swam in the moat, a camel and even an elephant, which would have been the first elephant ever seen in England. And crowds flocked to see it. I mean, they had to be quick because it died within two years. Henry tried twice to regain territory in France. In 1228, he was invited by the Dukes of Normandy and Poitou to come over and try to regain his Angevin lands with their help. But he and his lords dicked about, each of them blaming everyone else for the delays. And it wasn't until 1230 that Henry finally landed in France when it was all a bit too late. He didn't really achieve anything and came home looking pretty foolish, especially as he had raised a heavy tax to pay for the aborted campaign. His next attempt to regain territory in France was 10 years later in 1242. This time, perhaps to make up for what had happened the first time, he went off half-cocked before he was properly prepared. He rushed in and he couldn't raise nearly as much money as the considerably more wealthy and powerful King Louis of France. And he very soon realised that the French were a lot stronger and better prepared. 
So, as he always seems to have done, he tried to make a deal. I mean, it, it was almost as soon as he landed. But um, Louis's army lured him into a trap and surrounded him at Tebourg. Um, the French were persuaded to delay attacking by a day and Henry managed to run away, run away and escape. And once again, he eventually ended up slinking back into England with his tail between his legs. He was underfinanced and a hopeless general to boot. So Henry's come back to England following this pathetic campaign in France. But the knock-on effect of that is that the French king renews his campaign to consolidate his own power and take over more of these territories. And lots of Henry's wife, Eleanor's relatives, are dispossessed in France and all start tipping up in England, which causes a, a lot of problems as Henry is, you know, making them his favourites at court. They're seen as these outsiders coming over to England. They're getting all the favours. They're being given land that's being taken away from his other barons. So th this is all getting to be quite a sticky situation. As this is a point where he totally gives up any attempt to get his French territories back. He still retains, I think, Gascony in the southwest. But the French king is now very firmly in charge of France. And the English don't really start properly pushing back until uh, we get to Edward III and the start of what became known as the Hundred Years' War. He also tries to get one of his sons made king of Sicily. Uh, Sicily was quite an important strategic point because it was a sort of staging post for fleets travelling from Western Europe to the Middle East to go on crusades. So it was an important island, an important place, and there were lots of disputes over who was running it. It was one of those periods where there were two rival popes and they were all trying to curry favour with different monarchs, and one of them offered to help Henry in his efforts to take over Sicily which Henry was trying to do through money rather than campaigning. But he was up against one of these holy Roman emperors, these German rulers. They were all vying position. And again, it cost Henry a lot of money and it ended up getting him nothing. He never managed to take over Sicily. But it was yet again one of these occasions where he had raised all this money in taxes and lost it. And one of the ways he, he had raised money was by declaring that he was going crusading, at which point he was allowed to do this great sort of crusader tax on the people. And they, supposedly being good Christians, would applaud it and give, give him as much money as they could to do such a marvellous thing. He never actually went on a crusade and people started to mutter that the whole thing had been a, a fix, a scam, a bit like uh, <laughs> when, you, when you get... Um, an email from a prince in Nigeria. But, I mean, who knows if he did intend to go crusading, but, but he never did, and particularly as he wasn't that great at campaigning and didn't enjoy it. But back in England, his sister has married this prominent French baron called Simon de Montfort, who I mentioned at the beginning. So he comes into the story as Henry's brother-in-law, and he's given lands in England, and becomes one of these French barons who is sort of invited to England and Anglified. He's a very tough, stern, sort of unyielding kind of a guy. He's furious at Henry being so ineffectual in France, calls him a coward and a fool and accuses him of losing all this money and suggests that Henry should be deposed. It doesn't happen. Henry clings on. But Simon de Montfort starts really increasing his 
powers, and he is one of the people who is instrumental in setting up a regular parliament. He's very much on the side of the Magna Carta. He's very much on the side of the barons who want to control the king, stop him doing these reckless things. And they set up a regular fixed parliament three times a year with a set number of barons involved. But Simon de Montfort also introduces this idea that there should be representatives of the ordinary people, of, you know, mayors and merchants, rather. And this is the origins of the two houses that we have in our Houses of Parliament. We have the House of Lords, which is the ruling elite, the barons, and the House of Commons, which is the representation of the common people. And the word Parliament comes into use for the first time in Henry's reign from the French parler to speak. It's a speaking place where people can turn up and speak their minds. And in the barons' cases, it is almost always complaining about taxes and taxation. And that seems to be mainly what Parliament was about, was setting taxes, agreeing taxes, trying to get taxes abolished, trying to get debts abolished. Simon de Montfort has gone down in history as the sort of father of, of Parliament, you know, this wonderful Republican, I suppose you would call him. But he did do some pretty awful things. Particularly, there was this big problem of the barons' attitude towards the, the Jews in England, which we, we looked at a bit in the last episode. And it partly stems from prejudice. It partly stems from this idea that if you were in, in debt to a Jewish moneylender and you completely defaulted on your debt or you died and weren't able to pay it, then those debts which were repaid in land went to the Jews. But because they weren't allowed to own land... And because the Jews were owned by the king, they were part of his goods and chattel, that land then went to the king. And so the barons were furious that the king was using this system to gain more lands, which the king would then give to his supporters. So it was partly, as I say, prejudice and partly this whole thing of who owns the land and trying not to let the king trample over everyone. So the, the barons are always going to the king and all these parliaments and saying, we want you to abolish all our Jewish debt. The king doesn't want to do that because he makes a lot of money from the Jews. But Henry is slowly persuaded to act against the Jews. And this is the, the start of there being a lot of anti-Jewish propaganda. You may well be familiar with the concept of the blood libel. This is the awful conspiracy theory in which Jews are falsely accused of human sacrifice. It's claimed that they need the blood of a child, preferably a Christian child, to perform their ceremonies and religious rituals and eventually take over the world. It is, of course, complete bollocks, but it is pernicious bollocks and actually has interesting parallels to the modern Pizzagate conspiracy. So there were a few cases where children had been found dead in forests and things. And the locals would be stirred up and then they would rise up and they would try and blame it all on the local Jewish community. There was a case, for instance, of a boy who became known as Little St. Hugh of Lincoln. So this child, probably killed by a member of his own family, is found dead. It's blamed on the Jews and a local Jew is tortured so extensively that he ends up in order to save his life and to, to not be hurt anymore, confesses and says, yes, yes, we, we killed him for a ceremony, at which point I think they still executed the Jew. So Simon de Montfort is essentially ruling the country and he starts pushing through the things that he has been demanding, including the idea of nullifying all the Jewish debt 
And he figures the best way to do this is to essentially slaughter the Jews and destroy all their records, which he does. There are several massacres that he and his sons carry out. So Henry is forced more and more into passing these anti-Semitic laws, including this thing called the Statute of Jewry, which really limits what Jews are allowed to do, puts them into ghettos. He manages to take some of their money. He also decrees that all the Jews should wear this yellow badge sewn onto their clothing. You know, the, the echoes of what went on in the 1930s in Germany are very strong. And we can see that what Hitler was doing was just the latest in a long line of this anti-Semitic oppression, you know, which was just as bad in Russia. And it goes back down through hundreds and hundreds of years. So it's a pretty awful time for Jews in England. And, you know, the, the marvellous parliamentarian Simon de Montfort is kind of leading the charge against them. And we see where that goes in a minute. So... Simon de Montfort is in charge of this new parliament and he forces King Henry to come to Oxford where they have a big parliament there and they impose a whole new set of rules on Henry. It's a sort of new Magna Carta which became known as the Provisions of Oxford and it reiterated many of the points in the, in the original charter and the updated charter and added a few more things um, particularly about the running of parliament and trying to uh, set in stone the idea of the, the commoners having a representation. And for a while Simon de Montfort is sort of in charge. He's very much becomes a sort of Oliver Cromwell figure of this quite sort of stern, unyielding, as I say, parliamentary figure in opposition to the king, very anti the king's sort of frippery and wastes of money. Henry tries to resist. There is also this tension between the two big factions in the country between his in-laws from France and the English-born lords, which leads to the Second Barons' War, where Simon de Montfort essentially is leading the rebellious barons against Henry and his loyalists. Simon de Montfort has an early success, the Battle of Lewis, where he manages to capture both Henry and his eldest son, Edward, and has them imprisoned, at which point, like Oliver Cromwell, he sets himself up as the ruler of England. But it doesn't last long because Edward, Henry's son, is this very tough, warlike, macho guy and he manages to escape and he manages to rally an army around himself and takes on Simon's army at the Battle of Evesham. Now Simon had done something slightly untoward here in that he had raised an army of commoners trying to make a point but because he'd done that it meant that he was no longer subject to any of the rules of chivalry. What would happen in, in these baronial wars is that it wasn't done to actually kill the aristocracy on the other side. You could kill the foot soldiers, but you would try and capture the aristocracy and hold them hostage. But because Simon had sort of broken the rules of chivalry in terms of the army that he was leading, he was no longer protected by those rules. And Edward put together a 12-man hit squad and said, you know, whatever happens, you find Simon de Montfort and kill him. And that's exactly what happened. This was the end of Simon de Montfort. These 12 men sought him out, slaughtered him, dismembered his body and then mutilated it. And the news at the time reported that the head of the Earl of Leicester, that's Simon de Montfort, was severed from his body and his testicles cut off and hung on either side of his nose. 
and in such guise the head was sent to Wigmore Castle by Roger Mortimer, first Baron Mortimer, as a gift to his wife Maud. <laughs> so if any of you are worried about perhaps a Valentine's gift for your wife, cut off the head of your rival and give it to her with his testicles hung on either side of his nose. I think she'd really love that. But that wasn't all. His hands and feet were also cut off and sent to diverse places to enemies of his as a mark of great dishonour to the deceased. So, yes, he wasn't treated with a great deal of respect. There was a move to sort of uh, sanctify and people started making pilgrimages to where at least some small parts of his body were buried. But Henry put a, an end to that and had his body reburied somewhere else in secret. So that was the sad end of... Simon de Montfort, who'd been quite a prickly character and hadn't won himself a lot of friends and had pushed things through by force of will. And he was a powerful guy. But, you know, there is a stain on his character. And you wonder, you know, with all these places named after him as this great parliamentarian, that people perhaps haven't looked into a little bit more detail in some of the atrocities that he committed against the Jews. So that was the end of the Second Baron's Revolt and Henry by now is in his late 50s and he dies not long afterwards, probably of a stroke. And his uh, sort of valiant warlike son, Edward I, comes to the throne. Edward Longshanks. This is the Edward who is king in um, Mel Gibson's incredibly historically inaccurate Braveheart film. But Edward very much is, is a king that has a strong identity and that people have a kind of image of. And we'll see how truthful that image and his representation in films like Braveheart is in the next episode. So what was Henry like as a ruler? Well, for one, he was indecisive and kept changing his mind. And then just as his father, John, had done, he was forever making agreements with the barons and then breaking them. And he managed to alienate himself still further by getting his in-laws over from France and putting them in positions of power. Also, he was a very ineffectual military leader and campaigner, which wasted money and made him pretty unpopular with the people who wanted their kings to be these great warriors. But he did put a lot of money into the arts and architecture and seemed to have a reasonably civilised home life. He liked the domestic side of things. After his death, his wife tried to get him sanctified and there was a campaign to do that. It didn't really get very far because nobody could think of anything saintly he'd ever done other than being quite pious and uh, building his shrine to Edward the Confessor which is in Westminster Abbey. So he, he, although he ruled for this huge amount of time, he's not a big figure in British history. And as I say, it's probably Simon de Montfort, who nowadays people would know more about than, than about Henry himself. But he did father Edward I, who becomes a pretty major figure in British history, the so-called Hammer of the Scots. The next section of our rhyme is one, two, three, Neds. So we've got Edward I, Edward II, Edward III. And, and that is a, a fascinating run of history, which takes us up to the, the Black Death and the Battle of Cressy. So there's, there's a lot of fun stuff. to. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. My guest today is Sophie Therese Ambler, who is reader in medieval history and deputy director of the Centre for War and Diplomacy at Lancaster University, and is the author of a biography of Simon de Montfort called The Song of Simon de Montfort, England's First Revolutionary and the Death of Chivalry. Sophie, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about Henry and Simon. Thank you very much for having me. Now, first thing, I'm slightly worried that I've been pronouncing Simon de Montfort's name incorrectly because he was essentially a French man, wasn't he? So perhaps not Simon de Montfort. I just tend to go for Simon de Montfort because it's an age really before we get a very sort of change in the later Middle Ages to, towards using English pronunciations in, in aristocrat surnames. So Simon de Montfort uh, hailed from France. He spoke French. Uh, he would have pronounced it Simon de Montfort or Simon de Montfort if you're going to be uh, uh, precise. It's so interesting thinking about English history and, and the fact that essentially they were all French at the time. Yeah, yeah. So um, French was the lingua franca of Western Europe at the time. So people would have, um, in the aristocracy, would have grown up speaking French, but also it was the language used in the law courts as well. So lots of people would have had a working knowledge of it, at least. And at the church, the church at the same time was using Latin for writing, particularly, which is a fantastic uh, language for record keeping. So it's really only in the 13th century that English really starts to come to the fore a little bit more as a written language. Uh, churchmen, on the other hand, needed to be able to speak in English as well as French and work in Latin in order to to communicate to their uh, their parishioners. So. There was a real mix of languages. If you walked around uh, medieval London or any big city um, in England at the time, you would have had a real mix of languages being spoken. So, Sophie, when I started out on this series, I was dealing with Anglo-Saxon Britain and then getting into William the Conqueror and the Normans. And I got the feeling that there isn't actually a huge amount of written evidence to draw on. But by the time we get to Henry III, there must be a huge amount more being written down. Exactly. So around the year 1200, there was a boom in record keeping across Europe. So it's the, the English court, but also the French court, the papal court, uh, the courts of the kings of Spain. They suddenly start getting into keeping huge amounts of, of records. So in England, this starts in 1199 with King John. Um, he has his scribes starting to keep official copies of outgoing letters, 
um, as well as financial records, uh, which are kept in detail from, from at least the 12th century, so that we have as historians an entirely new amount of evidence in the 13th century compared to what we had in the 12th century. And it means that in England, we can trace the movements of Henry III from one place to the other almost on a daily basis, because every letter he sent was dated and given with the place where it was issued. So it means you can follow the king all the way around the kingdom. You can see what orders he's sending on a day-to-day basis. So that means we have a window onto the workings of government and kingship and the nobility in a way that we just didn't have before. Right. So you, as a a, a proper historian, are presumably having to read all these documents in their original languages. I guess some in Old English, some in French, some in Latin... Um, well, for the 13th century, a historian working on, on this period needs to be able to read uh, Latin and um, French. So Anglo-Norman is the sort of uh, French that they were using in the 13th century. And whilst most documents in the 13th century are written in Latin, there's an increasing use of, of Anglo-Norman French, which uh, is, is basically like a grammatically shaky uh, version of the modern language. Yeah, so a lot of our records survive from this period in archives um, across England and across the UK and across Europe, really. So we have to be able to not only read the languages that um, the people we study were working in, but we also have to be able to read the documents, which are written often in a very uh, technical, sometimes scratchy, sometimes messy, highly abbreviated hand by these professional scribes. That allows us to go in and read everything from sort of the royal orders that were going out, the financial records of government, but also the court cases that were that were going on at the time as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a, a skill that has to be built up over many years. Well, I have even more respect for you, for you real historians who do this properly, rather than amateurs like me, Wikipedia historians, shall we say, who just leech off all the original research that you've done. But so, I mean, so studying Henry, did you feel that you got a pretty good idea of what he would have been like as a man? I think we do to a certain extent. I mean, how how much can we ever really understand what's going on inside someone's head? Obviously, with that caveat, I think we know quite a bit about Henry III. Um, now, we don't know really what he looked like particularly, um, but we know that he was a very uh, a pious man. He was very devoted um, to the church. He heard mass every day. He was particularly attached to St. Edward the Confessor, who he saw as his great sort of model, as uh, as kingly, uh, holy predecessor. And he actually rebuilt Westminster Abbey in honour of St. Edward the Confessor, who founded the abbey originally. And Henry wanted to create a um, sort of, open, consensual uh, sort of kingship and government where he would get on very well with his barons. We also know, too, that Henry III was a a very loving family man. He was very dedicated to his wife, uh, Queen Eleanor, and very dedicated to his children as well. And we start to get glimpses of the huge amount of, of affection that he had for them. He lost a child, unfortunately, or Eleanor and Henry lost a child, uh, Catherine in her infancy, and we can see how much they were devastated 
um, by that uh, traumatic um, traumatic episode in their lives. We also know um, that Henry was, um, well, he was often referred to as simplex, which means simple, which can just mean a sort of straightforward, straight down the line kind of guy, but it can also just mean a little bit gullible, a little bit easily led, a little bit too much willing right. to listen to the first piece of advice he heard, no matter who it was coming from and no matter whether that, that advice was good or not. So he comes a cropper at various points in his reign because he doesn't have the political nous really to determine what's good advice, what's bad advice, hmm. and also to determine what's a sensible policy and what is not. So regarding his relationship with the barons, do you think he would have been better off trying to work with Simon de Montfort rather than butting heads? I mean, could it have ever worked, having both of them in positions of power? I think it certainly could have done. And one of the reasons that it, it, it doesn't is the sort of personalities and frustrations on both sides. So one of the difficulties that Simon de Montfort and his comrades and fellow noblemen had in the 1250s particularly was that Henry was um, implementing these quite extravagant policies without taking advice from his men. One of the most famous ones is this ambition that Henry III had um, to conquer the Kingdom of Sicily mm. on behalf of his younger son, Edmund, which was going to be extravagantly expensive. But also nobody believed Henry could really pull it off because uh, Henry, unlike his son, Edward I, uh, was no good with a sword. <laughs> and so the point that Simon de Montfort and his comrades were trying to make was that Henry should ask advice before for doing this sort of thing. And one of the measures that Simon de Montfort put in when he took power uh, between 1258 and 1265 was to hold regular parliaments at least three times a year and discuss the business of the kingdom. The idea being that if the king engages with the wider political community before making those big decisions, it should be a good way of stopping bad policies being made. Um, so if Henry had taken on board these kind of demands and had he been willing uh, to listen to that, that broader canvassing of advice, then there wouldn't have necessarily been a need um, for imposing reform on him by radical means, by seizing power, which is what Simon de Montfort did. Do you think de Montfort ultimately wanted power for himself or not? Well, this is a very, this is a very difficult question. Again, how much do we know what's really going on? Mm. Um, so in uh, the period that we're looking at uh, between 1258 and 1265, which is the period we, we can call the first English revolution because it's the seizure of power by mm. a cohort of, of noblemen and churchmen. Um, the king is kept prisoner for a large part of that time and he's sort of uh, made nothing more than a name um, on a document. This is in incredibly radical, but what Simon de Montfort does between 1264 and 1265, after he takes the king prisoner, after winning uh, this great victory at the Battle of Lewis, is to put in place a council. And that council has nine men on it. And the idea is that all decisions about the running of the kingdom will be made on a two-thirds majority. Now, of course, if you scratch beneath the surface of that, you do see Simon de Montfort making the major policy decisions. And in particular, he's leading... Um, the uh, the army 
of the barons. You see, he's got a, a huge amount of power. And there's just a hint, there's a hint that he had ambitions, not necessarily for himself, because that would have been very tricky, but perhaps for his children. Mm. So Simon was married to um, Eleanor, Eleanor de Montfort, who was the sister of King Henry III. Now, that made their relationship particularly difficult. Family feud. <laughs> but it did mean that um, Eleanor and Simon's children had royal blood. Yeah. So there, there's just a hint that Simon might have had an idea of setting up something more permanent um, for his children. But it's hard to prove. I mean, is, is there anybody anywhere in this period, early Middle Ages, whatever you want to call it, in Britain, in Europe, who is saying... Why do we have to have a king at all? Is there, is there any movement saying that ruling council might be a better method? Broadly speaking, there was a king-shaped hole in people's heads. This was how you run a, run a government. But also, it's how you have run a government in England or in France um, for, for generations, for centuries, since time immemorial. And the particular prop there were two problems. Um, one is changing that system of government so you can't just say we've had a king for for centuries we're going to change to a new system and the second is even if you were going to say you could change to a new system who has the right to make that change simon de montfort or any of his friends but they really struggled because there was no legal basis for what they'd done so de montfort is is often called the sort of father of modern parliament and the creator of the house of commons how how true is any of that and how can you just talk me through sort of how parliament worked and particularly the reforms that de montfort put in place in terms of the commoners yes so um parliament became increasingly important in the 13th century there had been national assemblies since the anglo-saxon uh kings had ruled certainly but what happened in the 13th century is that after um, the changes that came in with Magna Carta under King John and in the early years of Henry III's reign, it became impossible practically for the king to make major decisions such as deciding attacks without consulting his Greek subjects in Parliament. So Parliament had to meet particularly if the king wanted to raise money by attacks. And if that was the case, who should come? It was the barons who hold the great estates themselves from the king, the bishops as well, abbots, and men of perhaps knightly or middling status would be coming as well. What changes in the 1250s is that knights start coming to parliament by a system of election in the counties. It would be the county court who would elect two representatives to attend parliament. So this is all underway before Simon de Montfort comes to power. The difference that we get after 1258, when he and his uh, comrades uh, go through the first stage of their revolution, is that they say, OK, Parliament is not going to meet only when the king wants a tax. We're going to have a Parliament three times a year, come what may, because Parliament should be integral to the running of the kingdom. And that is something they stuck to until Simon de Montfort's downfall in 1265. So that's the big change, number one. The second change comes in 1265. So after Simon wins this victory at the Battle of Lewis in 1264, which gives him 
massive amounts of power. The king is literally his prisoner and he can set up this new council. And it will be for the running of the kingdom, not to raise money. We won't only have barons, we won't only have churchmen, we won't only have knights who've come by a system of election from the counties, we will have men from the towns as well. So all the notable towns will send two men, London will send four because of its size and importance, and they will take part in discussions about the business of the kingdom too. So it's for these reasons that, that Simon de Montfort is, is hailed in this way as the godfather of the House of Commons. How were these new commoners treated in Parliament? I mean, they can't have had equal status with the Lords. Well, this is the question. I mean, we, we don't have any record of parliamentary debate, for yeah. instance. There were no Parliament roles for um, Henry III's reign, which is when we start to get outlines of what was discussed in Parliament. We have no transcript or anything like that. So we don't know, uh, were the people from the towns allowed to speak? Yeah, the Lords must have thought, who are these bloody oiks? Again, this is one of one of the unknowns because it was part of the um, great cause of Simon de Montfort's movement that um, he was going to be more generous and a good lord to um, his you know, hmm. tenants, lower status subjects. And that actually one of the great arguments that was being made by the Montfortian regime was that people should have greater access to justice. People shouldn't be suffering under the corrupt hand of sheriffs and royal judges. So what you see under the Montfortian regime is an entirely new level of engagement between government and ordinary people. Which is what presumably allowed de Montfort to get the ordinary people on side and have them fighting for him, to, to, to get them to join his army. Yes, and they did so in many cases because they really believed in this cause, because they'd heard the message, they'd taken it in, and they were very enthusiastic about uh, Simon de Montfort's regime. So do you think parallels between de Montfort and Oliver Cromwell are, are valid? There are lots of interesting comparisons that you can make with what happens in the 1260s and the 17th century um, civil war. And obviously we have um, a very charismatic leader. Uh, charismatic can mean different things, but certainly um, someone who's very uh, powerful and eloquent and who people are willing to follow. And we also have obviously uh, this increasing role of parliament and demand for um, oversight of, of government. Um, so Simon uh, can be compared to Cromwell in those sorts of ways. I think it's important to to recognise at the same time the culture from which Simon de Montfort and his, his friends came. One of the things that was most important to him, as it was to Henry III, was the church. Mm. Um, so he was incredibly pious, uh, dedicated as well. Um, he also had a huge commitment to crusading. So... There was this tremendous aura about him of the sort of the holy warrior. And this was perhaps what led him to treat the Jews of England so badly. First of all, when he comes to power as Earl of Leicester, he expels um, the Jewish people of Leicester from his domain. Now, that means actually he's, he's pushing them outside of, of town to the suburbs. And um, that's about sort of the limit of what he can do. Mm. But when uh, his regime takes power, one of the ways that they go about trying to raise money to support their army is to plunder money from the Jewish populations of, of, of London in particular, uh, Winchester as well. And 
in so doing, it turns into a bloodbath. Mm. So, I mean, it's it, it contentious to, to get into areas of were they a good person, were they a bad person, do you like them, do you not like them? But I mean, what, what's your sort of final take on de Montfort? Mm. Well, I think I'm personally quite ambivalent about him in the sense that what I can see um, very clearly in all of the sources that, that I look at, and I'm looking particularly at how he was viewed by other people, both his supporters um, and his opponents, is that he was incredibly charismatic in the sense of not just being um, heroic and eloquent and highly intelligent and people wanting to follow him, but people actually really had the sense that he was somehow sent by God and doing God's work and leading this holy cause. And that is, is palpable. And you can imagine him having a massive impact on everyone around him. And if you were someone who uh, was his follower or liked him or loved him, you would have been completely um, in his thought. And what we see in 1265 at his downfall at the Battle of Evesham is his knights and his barons being willing to follow him to death because that's how much that you know they they believed in his cause but believed in him and admired him and believed that they were um doing something that was that was just and, and was holy at the same time you can see a terrifying side of him a ruthless side so not only that comes out in um the persecution of um Jews in in uh these cities in England but also he was incredibly intelligent, incredibly sharp-tongued, and was able um, to to put down, to humiliate, to embarrass people who he thought were fools and beneath him, which he did uh, particularly to Henry III, which mm. is something you shouldn't really do to a king. <laughs> so his his friends knew this, and they tried to warn him. They just like hold your tongue, and and he didn't listen. So you can see this really. Um, yeah, uh, sinister side to him as well. And it all ended for him at the Battle of Evesham, where his army was greatly outnumbered by the royal army being led by Henry's son, Edward. And it seems that de Montfort knew that this was a lost cause, that it was all over for him. I think he reportedly said to his men, God have mercy on our souls, for our bodies are theirs. Exactly. Um, so we have fantastic sources for the Battle of Evesham, which isn't often the case um, with medieval battles. And in particular, we have an eyewitness account of the 4th of August 1265, the day of the battle, by one of the monks of Evesham Abbey. So Simon had set up his army um, at Evesham Abbey in the early hours of that morning. And one of the monks was there listening to the conversations that were taking place, and then was able to describe particularly the carnage after the battle. But he records these conversations and what was said. So we know, for instance, that Simon's army had essentially been on the run from um, Edward, that's the Lord Edward, Prince Edward, heir to the throne, uh, was coming after him. And they were exhausted, they'd barely slept or eaten uh, in three days. And one of his men says to him, look, we should take refuge in Evesham Abbey. We should hide there. We can hopefully wait for reinforcements. And Simon says, no, no, no. One should seek knights on the battlefield and chaplains in churches. He has this way of speaking, which is 
you know, <laughs> sort of a no nonsense, but also also very um, eloquent. So we get snippets like this, and we also get this um, speech that he gives to his men before the battle. So they move out of Evesham Abbey, they walk up um, through the town towards what will be the battlefield on Greenhill. And at this point, the army pauses and they see that there's an escape route available to them. Um, Edward has left a bridge unblocked, sort of tempting them to make a run for it. And Simon says, look, um, this is this is your escape. You don't have to fight with me, um, whether you're you're young and you have um, you know, young families who rely on you or whether you're a senior statesman whose counsel could still be of great value to the kingdom. Run, go now, save yourselves. And uh, one of his his closest friends, Hugh Dispenser, says to him, no, my lord, no, let it be. Today we shall drink from one cup, just as we have done long since. So this is a sort of a reference to Christ and his death. Yes. But it's also the sense that, no, we're, we're going to die together. Yeah. And, well, it's interesting because in many ways, de Montfort is probably better known by more people now than Henry himself. You know, I think Henry is one of those kings that... You say to someone, tell me three facts about Henry III, they're not going to be able to come up with much. Honestly, his reign is one of the, the most important um, in the Middle Ages, and it's incredibly rich, it's incredibly detailed in the records. So it's something that people don't always know about, but they should. Well, great. And and, and one of their ways of knowing more about it would be to read your book on Simon de Montfort. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Sophie. That's been really interesting. And I feel really bad now that I I was a bit dismissive of Henry earlier in the episode. So it's great to hear a a Henry supporter. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and thank you so much for, for giving up your time. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Charlie. So that's Henry III. A fascinating life that should be better known. His son, Edward I, comes to the throne in our next episode. Edward Longshanks, the so-called Hammer of the Scots, a classic tall warrior king, the villain in Mel Gibson's ridiculous Braveheart. So join me next time to find out the truth about the first of our three Neds. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023.